Thank you both. What fitting testimonies to end our Encountering Jesus series. Jesus is still healing people and answering prayers. Jesus is still wanting to use us in our ways to reach others that they too would have an encounter with the Lord Jesus. Um, I've got a theory about this. If you were to be in in an nativity play and you could choose what part you were going to play, what part would you play? Think about it. What would you be? Uh, Banish all the fear of being on the stage. Imagine you've got some gifting in drama and you could be anything you want. Okay. Think of the costume you might wear. Think of the lines you might say. Think of the entrance you might have. Who would want to be... Gabriel or one of the angels? Paul's very determined. Yeah, a few of you. Okay, good. That's good. Who would like to be a shepherd? Got a couple of few shepherds. Okay, a few shepherds. Who would like to be either Mary or Joseph? Oh, yeah, a few of you. Yeah, okay. All right. And who of you would like to be the magi or the wise men? Oh, just me and a few friends. All right, well, my theory's blown out of the water. The clue is here, you see. I just thought, like... You might think like me, that the Magi, that would be the best bit. Sorry, I haven't got to you. What do you want to be? Sorry, you put your hand up. The innkeeper. (laughs) Well, I won't get into that today, but I don't think there was an innkeeper, but never mind. (laughs) That's for another another year. (laughs) I just thought, you know, it's a rather drab affair up to a point, isn't it? And then midway through the nativity scene, some very exotic-looking characters turned up. With, with very bright colours, and they look kind of rich and flamboyant, and they come on funny animals hobbling in, and they make a bit of an entrance, and they've got some treasures, and they present them. I just thought it would be great to be one of them. That's just me and a few of you, but never mind. But I think actually next year, Quinta, I don't know, there's enough of us here. We could all take a part. We're up for it. Come on. Right, okay. Let's read then Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 to 12. It'll come up behind me, but I know I'm big and I'm in the way, um, and I'll read it out as well. You could look it up if you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written, and quoting from Micah chapter 5, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go. And search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, it went ahead of them until it stopped 
over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. There we are. Heavenly Father, I do pray that even from this familiar scene and passage, you would speak to us afresh this morning, help us to understand more of who you are, Help us to understand what you're asking of us and refresh our spirits to be the kind of people that you want us to be. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Uh, there are three things that I believe uh, the, this passage reminds us about, and I want to draw them out this morning. The first one is that the gospel is global. The second one is that God is gracious. Gracious in our journey towards faith, towards him. And thirdly, I want to highlight the fact that our response, we're to worship. So no rocket science this morning. You may have heard some familiar themes like that before, but I believe there's something fresh in here around those themes again this morning. So the gospel is global. Why does Matthew include this in his short account of Jesus' birth. He doesn't go into all the other details he could have, but he's selected this. He's not got much else, but he's chosen this passage of this group of foreigners traveling, I don't know, five, 600 miles, possibly it's thought out of where today we call Iraq, and they'd come to worship Jesus. Well, I believe it's because Matthew wanted us to understand that the gospel, this good news about Jesus Christ, was for the whole wide world. He wanted to ram that message home and for us to be in no doubt about it. Already he's given a taster. If you look at chapter 1 of Matthew, where he gives us a detailed uh, backstory, if you like, family tree of Jesus, and he goes down through the male line, get to verse 5, he can't help himself but to highlight that Rahab was a far-off great-grandmother of Jesus. Why has he done that? Because she wasn't an Israelite. She was probably a Jebusite from another nation. And then following on from that, we're told of Ruth, who also was a far-off grandmother of Jesus. And then he gets back to the male line. Why Ruth? She wasn't an Israelite. She was a Moabite. She was of a different nation. So already, uh, Matthew's been very deliberate in pointing that out. And now he gets his opportunity. The Magi, these foreigners from afar, have come because the gospel is global. If you're not convinced, go to the very end of Matthew because he, he bookends his, his whole account of Jesus with the theme of the nations. He leaves us with the great commission that Jesus gave to his followers Having said that all authority in heaven on earth was his, Jesus then said, therefore, go and make disciples of everyone you come across in your little circle. No. Of people just in this little nation and corner of the earth. No. Of all nations. All nations. It's a global gospel. 
And Matthew, uh, we do know, we do discern, was, was primarily writing to Jewish readers. So why would he want to highlight the global dimensions of the gospel? Well, I think it's another way to demonstrate that there's evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew loves to point out all the evidence that Jesus has fulfilled all the promises that were made previously about the Messiah. And one of them is that uh, they would take this gospel, this good news, and spread it around the world. See, right from the beginning, God's chosen people, Israel, were always designed to point towards the saviour of the world. They were always meant to be drawing the nations into the worship of the one true God. Their God, yes, but other nations' God too. And they were to be the example that others followed. And now the Messiah, as was meant to happen, has fulfilled all of that. He's come to fulfill the ingathering of the nations to the worship of the one true God. So who were these magi? they about? In our nativity scenes, they sometimes get referred to as wise men, sometimes as kings, but the word here is magi. What are they all about? Well, they were astrologers. They claimed to be able to predict the future by looking at the stars and the planets and their movements. If you like, think more of a horoscope writer, a bit more of a Russell Grant, perhaps, than a Brian Cox. Than a Patrick Moore, not an astronomer, but an astrologer. Put the emphasis in the wrong place there. At best, this is a kind of pseudoscience by today's standards. Doesn't really hold up to the rigors of anything scientific. But at worst, it involved occult practices, calling on the spirit realm to bring predictions about the future. Magi is the word we get magic from. Just put a C on the end. That's what they're about. They weren't kings. They weren't of any royal descent. They weren't wise, not by any objective standard. They were priest, pagan priest fortune tellers that had some influence at times. And as if to underline the global reach of the good news of Jesus, these magi weren't simply a kind of random exotic group from far off. Where Mary's eyes were on stalks. Ooh, how exciting. No, they represented the arch nemesis of the people of Israel. They represented the Babylon, Babylon kingdom, the Babylonians. Back in their history, the group that so oppressed them, that conquered them, that 600 years previously had destroyed Jerusalem, had exiled all the, most of the Israelites into other parts of the empire just to try and culturally obliterate them. And the Magi were advisors in those days. They were behind the scenes. They were the people leaned on for some kind of spiritual guidance by the kings of those empires. They'd been behind it all. Been behind some of the persecution that had subsequently come as the Israelites were in their exiled lands. But God is in the business of turning Magi into worshippers. I've got a little thing to remind, help you remember this. What letter's that? Is it an M? Yeah, and what letter's that? A W. Here we go. God is in the business of turning magi into worshippers. I like that. I don't know why. I don't know why I like that. It helps me remember. God is in the business of turning Muslims into worshippers of Jesus. Hallelujah. 
God is in the business of turning postmodernists who have rejected the concept of absolute truth into worshippers of Jesus. God is in the business of turning millennials. If you're under 25, round about, you're a millennial. That's your culture. That's your kind of generation, we're told. And there's not many connected to church in the West anymore. But God's in the business, your peers, of turning them into worshippers of Jesus. Therefore, I'm encouraged. We can have faith. No one is beyond God's reach. There are no hard cases for God. You might think you're a hard case for God. For us, it's all hard. But for God, there's no hard case. So when you meet again that stubborn family member that hasn't taken the bait of your gospel life-giving seeds at all, and you're going to see them and engage with them again this Christmas, just believe they're not beyond. God's in the business. That new age colleague of yours, so stuck in their views, their worldviews, no, God's in the business. That irreverent neighbor, God's in the business of turning into worshipers of Jesus. You know, the world won't end, Jesus won't return until the gospel is first preached to all nations. We look for signs, let's tell you, this is a sign. When the gospel is preached, when there's a Bible-believing, Jesus-following community in every ethnic portion of the world, then, then, then the end will come. Then Jesus will return. Because Jesus is in the business of building a multi-ethnic church. We get a picture of the scene ahead of us in Revelation 7-9, where there's a great multitude in heaven. A, a number that nobody can count. And they come from every nation and every people and every tribe and every language. And they come before the throne and they come before the Lamb, like what we've been doing this morning, and worshiping Jesus. He wants everyone to be represented in that place. That's what he's about. This is a global gospel. It had to be. We wouldn't be here. Unless you're Jewish. You might be. But probably most of us aren't. Or have any Jewish connection. But the gospel has gone global. God is gracious. God, I just, as I, I looked at this story from the Magi's point of view, I just saw, wow, God, you were so gracious to those Magi in drawing them in wooing them, in guiding them to discover Jesus for themselves and to worship him and put their faith in him. God was so, so loved them, so guided them, and they, they hadn't deserved it. They hadn't earned it. They didn't merit his attention or his, his, his guidance, but he chose to give it to them anyway. Just in three ways, look at verse 3. The star turns up. The, the Magi said this when they arrived in Jerusalem. We saw his star when it rose. So somehow in God's grace, he'd alerted these magi to the birth of Jesus in a language they understood. We don't quite know how, but God drew their attention to one out of all the billions of stars up there, one star, and somehow led them to conclude, oh, the Jewish Messiah has been born. <laughs> Somehow we'll find out one day, I trust. You see, we do know that the circumstances around Jesus' birth fulfilled many, many biblical prophecies, promises that had been made hundreds of years before that Jesus as a baby, even as a conceived embryo, could not have engineered, unless he was, of course, the Son of God. And this was something that Matthew was particularly keen to highlight to his Jewish readers in writing Matthew. The book we call Matthew. 
So even in the first two chapters, we have four very explicit Old Testament passages. Because you say, look, 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 he's joining the dots for us. It said, as we read today in Micah 5, Bethlehem would be the place that the Messiah would be born. And lo and behold, he was born in Bethlehem. There are four of those in these early chapters. On top of that, there's probably another four at least or references that he makes in, in his, these two chapters that Jesus fulfilled, Old Testament prophecies, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would come from the descendants of, of David and Jesse and also of Judah. All of those are in there, fulfilling what was said beforehand. But there's no, as I understand, commonly, there wasn't any commonly held expectation by the Israelites that a star would herald the birth of the Messiah. It wasn't there. It wasn't something they, they had come to understand. I think if they had, it would have been in here. When the chief priests and the scribes were scratching their heads, thinking, oh yeah, well, it's in Bethlehem. They would have said, oh, you said a star? Oh, oh a star? All oh, right. Now, that, that might have got them, you know, listening a bit more intently. And I think Matthew, even if the scribes hadn't worked it out, Matthew might have added it later into this passage, I wonder, if that was a common held view. Um, Isaiah 60, perhaps, but it says this in verse 3, nations will come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your dawn. But I don't think that is this. They talk about brightness and light, I understand that, you know, but there's no mention of a star. And they talk about kings, and we've just said that these aren't kings, these are magi. And it's the sun that brightens the dawn. The, the, I know the sun's a star, but, you know, the stars brighten the night. So it doesn't seem to fit. It wasn't that view. Possibly Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam prophesied way back when and said this, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Goes on to talk about conquering enemies. So possibly there is a link there between a star and a king and a victor. But it wasn't, it wasn't really regarded overtly as messianic, a promising of the Messiah. And even if it was, Matthew and the scribes hadn't noticed it. Maybe, maybe the Magi came across that. I don't know. We'll find out. But I think that's a little bit remote. God spoke to them in a language they understood. There's a star. Oh, it must mean something. It means this. I don't know how they got there. The second act of grace towards these Magi, I think, is in what I've termed Daniel's legacy. You see, the reason why the Magi interpreted this new star as a reference to the Messiah was possibly due to the legacy, the influence that Daniel had had years and years, hundreds of years beforehand. See, Daniel was one of the exiles from Israel, forcibly moved, and then he rose to very high position in government office under three different kings over the Babylonian and then the Persian kingdoms. So a foreigner, but yet God's hand had been on him graced him with so much understanding and education and wisdom, but on top of that, this kind of prophetic gift to understand dreams and to interpret them, on top of that, just character of integrity and humility, that every king that came to the throne of that big empire concluded, we need Daniel on board. We need him. And one of the areas of responsibility he seemed to have was, if you like, the minister of the Magi, because he was much wiser than they were. And he could interpret dreams better than they could because he was relying on the one true God, not their kind of magic art, if you like. And so he was given that responsibility. And one of the themes of Daniel's life, if you read his book earlier in the Old Testament, was that he prophesied about a coming Messiah, that he'd be a divine king, 
that he would have a global and eternal kingdom like the world has never seen before. And so possibly, this is surmising, I know, possibly this had left some kind of lasting impression. There was something in the, in the back catalogue of articles written by kind of Magi superiors that, that was still alive in this Magi order in that day. And maybe this group now had joined these dots together somehow by God's grace. I don't know. I'm speculating. But I think it does suggest that God's grace led them. And thirdly, what I call star mark two. I love this bit. So fascinating. Verse nine in this account. They went on their way. They're going off now to Bethlehem, only a few miles away. And it says the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where they they found the child. A star then went ahead of them, then stopped and pinpointed a precise address. I don't think stars do that. I don't know of a star that's ever done that. There's something now has changed. See, up to this point, it was just a star. And the major, I would go, oh, well, 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 it's the Messiah. Oh, maybe, maybe. Let's go to, let's go to you know, Jerusalem. Yeah, let's go to Jerusalem. Yeah. They'll just kind of follow in their nose. Uh, we're in Jerusalem. Oh, let's go to the palace. Yeah, because it's about a king. Yeah, good idea. Go to the king. Uh, they were just following. The star hadn't pinpointed where to go. It just told them. It just announced it. But now, this star seemed to have changed and was like a sat-nav, not just telling you which direction to go in, but it's that one. And I don't think God had to do that. There was only so many houses in Bethlehem. It was a small place back then. A few knocking on the doors, a few asking around, and they might have found a newborn baby or a toddler, depending on the timing of these things. We're not quite sure. But no, God, by his grace, said, no, no, I'm going to highlight. The star's going to morph into something, and it's going to tell you where to go. That's just God's grace, is it not? It's led me to reflect, you know, God, you've been so gracious in my journey. We had prayers, didn't we, early, thanking God for his faithfulness to us. I think there's a time, isn't there, at Christmas to do that, to reflect, Lord, you've been so gracious to me on my journey to find you. You've been so gracious. You put people in my way. You've intervened. Like you've, you've always been there. And even when I forgot and wandered off, you reminded me and brought me back. And when I turned, you were there. We've, we've, we've prayed those prayers. We know it to be true for us. God's grace for us has been amazing on our journey to faith. And if you're still on that journey to faith, God has already been gracious to you. And he wants to be more gracious to you because he wants you to discover who he really is. And to put your faith in him like these magi did back then. I'm so grateful to God for my family. It's my testimony that that starts, I grew up in a Christian household. And I know that doesn't sound very exciting. And if you've got a testimony like that, you might think it's not very boring. I tell you, it's grace. It is grace. It is grace. All of my siblings are Christians. All of their spouses are Christians and loving the Lord. I grew up in a Christian home. My four grandparents were alive for the first 35 years of my life. They all followed Jesus. They're all their parents, all eight of their parents followed Jesus. I have had grace in my life. That might not be your story, but there'll be others who have influenced you, who have, who have intervened, who have pointed to Jesus, who've modeled him to you, who've shown you the way to him. There have been other events in your life, other answers to prayer that you never prayed as he directed you, as he guided you into him, into faith in him. And for many of us now, as believers, the boot is on the other foot. 
we now are to be God's grace for others. We're to be part of their journey in encountering Jesus, discovering him, and following him. I love this verse in Philippians 2. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. I'm sure there's a Christmas sermon just in that first phrase. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Oh, thank you, Lord. You're you're making us more like Jesus. Children of God, that's who we are, Lord. Without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Yes, Lord, we're living in a time of warped crookedness. Lord, that's our generation around us. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. That's what we're to do. The dark is dark. It's getting darker. Yes, but that's when you see the light. That's when you see the stars. If they're holding on to the word of life, holding on to the the word of life, If if they know who they are as children of God, And if they're living that out and allowing him to change them to be more like Jesus, we're now to be the ones shining like stars in the universe against the black canvas of this world that others too would come and seek and find Jesus. And lastly, the third theme really, the third reminder in this passage, I believe, is that we're to worship Jesus. Worship is the big theme of this passage Looking at verse 2 there, that's the reason the Magi came. We saw this star. We've come to worship him. That's what they told Herod, verse 8. Herod said, I too want to worship. Because he knew that's what they were about. Verse 11, when they got to Jesus, what did they do? Did they have a little chat? Cup of tea? Oh, nice to meet you, Mary. Well, there may have been a bit of that. But immediately, says Matthew, they bowed down and they worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus. This baby. They worshipped him. What God is looking for. And really in contrast to some of the others in this passage that showed other characteristics. Apathy. Scribes. The priests. Yeah, they were very much aware of the prophecies of old, the past, things God had said in the past. They were very much, I guess, aware that things in the future was coming, the Messiah was on his way, but in the present, apathy. Didn't do anything. They were conspicuous by their lack of activity. And I guess a lot of people treat Christmas like that. Yeah, it's a lovely little moment. Yeah. A little bit of Jesus. That's nice. But then really uh, indifferent. Really. Nothing. Not moved. Another response was hostility. Herod, perhaps driven by fear or power, had all the boys murdered in Bethlehem up to the age of two as he had done other potential usurpers to his throne, even those from his own family he had had killed to protect his uh, power base. And there are Christians, and I'm told increasingly at the moment, persecuted for their faith around the world in many nations today. That is still the response of some people. Hostility towards God and his people. But what is God looking for this Christmas? What, if you like, is on his Christmas list? He's looking for worshippers. He's looking for more worshippers. He's looking for people to worship him more than they were before. Why did God humble himself and become a human being, born into poverty and obscurity? Well, 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 to kind of uh, uh, to 
to die on the cross in our place. Yes, of course. But why did he do that? Well, to come and save us from our sins and gift us with eternal life. Yes, yes. But why did he do that? So he could create this great multitude of people that he would call his bride, that would span the world in terms of its ethnic diversity, that would then worship him forever and ever and ever. That's why. That's the why behind the why behind the why of Christmas. The chief end of man, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, so says the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Worshipping Jesus, worshipping God is our created purpose. Worshipping God, worshipping Jesus is, is why we've been saved if we've put our faith in Jesus. Worshipping Jesus is where we find fulfillment and satisfaction because of those previous two statements. Worshipping Jesus will be the event, the main activity in heaven for eternity. And we know that worship is more than 40 minutes of coming together once a week to sing songs. How wonderful though that is as we combine our worshipping hearts in company together. But we know that worship is bigger than that and deeper than that. We know that Jesus is demanding our everything, our everything, our complete commitment, our enduring devotion, our radical obedience. And I think the Magi modeled something of that for us right here so beautifully. They show us that worship actually involves faith. It involves faith. You can't worship without faith. I think their presence, they opened their treasures and they were trying to, th what can we give? Uh, I don't think they were really thinking, what can I give? Three nice things that preachers can talk about many years later as nice illustrations. I don't think they were thinking like that. I don't think they were thinking, oh, 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 these things will, will prophetically speak into who Jesus is. Yes, they do that, but I don't think that's what they were thinking. They were giving out faith. This is Jesus. And they gave gold because they saw this is Jesus, the king, the king of kings, my king. Even though I'm not from this country, he's my king, they said. They gave him gold. They gave him frankincense. Why? Frankincense offered up to God in, in worship and sacrifice because they recognized this Jesus is God. He's a baby, yes, but he's somehow also God. And that was their faith. They gave him frankincense. And they gave him myrrh because somehow they, they realized that, uh, to a level that in his death, because myrrh was used in death, in his death he would save and rescue and heal and set free and establish something new. It was faith. Worship involves faith. Worship involves submission. These magi, when they got there, they bowed to Jesus. They bowed to him. I don't know how. I don't know how they did it. I don't know what culture kind of etiquette was right for them. But they bowed. They submitted to this baby. Why? Because they saw he was God. He was king. He was savior. And they submitted to him. I don't think they went back to their home country and got their magic books out again. I don't think they did. I don't think, I don't think they did anything other than ab abandon their astrology charts. They didn't go back to the horoscopes. No, they, they submitted now to a new king, to a new God, to a new savior. Worship is costly. Yeah, I'm sure these gifts were very expensive, but it was more than that. They'd spent two years, it would seem, planning this trip, going on this trip, not really knowing where, who, what they were going to go and see and do. But they knew when they found him. It was expensive for them. It cost them something. They opened their treasures. I love that phrase. They opened their treasures and presented gifts. 
They open their treasures, treasures and hearts. They're so linked. Where our heart is, there our treasure is. Where our treasure is, there's our heart. They open themselves. Have you opened your treasures to Jesus? The things you're clinging on to, the things you've acquired, have you opened them? Because when you, when you love Jesus, everything comes. It's all his. But why do we have offerings? Why do we give year after year, month after month, and special offerings like this? Because it's an expression of our faith and our worship and our submission to Jesus. It costs us something. Yeah, we might not have that holiday now. The kids might not get the presents that they might have otherwise had. It's going to affect my lifestyle because well, I've given everything. I'm devoted to this God, this Jesus Christ. And worship is obedience. When God spoke to these magi, however little they may have known, they obeyed. When he sent them a star, go and discover the Savior, they obeyed, they went. When, when, they, when he spoke to them through the Bible, he described it, oh yeah, it's in, it's in Bethlehem, they obeyed. When then at the end here, God spoke to them in a dream, don't go back to Herod, they, they obeyed. Every time, obedience, obedience, obedience. Worship is to be radically obedient to Jesus. I'm going to encourage us to stand now, if you will. We're going to worship, seems fitting to, to sing our intent, our response to this message. But let's be those who worship Jesus in the fullness of faith. Let's be those who worship Jesus in complete surrender. Let's be those who worship Jesus by giving of our treasures, by giving of our very lives to be obedient followers of him. Let's thank God for his global gospel and for the gracious ways in which he alerted us to it and drew us in on it and gave us the faith to believe in him. And let us, church, let us now shine. Let us shine like stars in this dark world that others from all backgrounds, from all nationalities, from any previous religion would come and seek Jesus and worship him with us for his glory. Amen. Amen.